0: Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming,
1: action. Hi y'all, this is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. If you haven't heard on two of my recent shows, the 12th Richmond International Film Festival starts September 21st and runs through October 1st. 195 films from more than 20 countries will be shown at several venues, plus their concerts, panel discussions, and the first Global Visionary Summit. I'll post a link to Riff on the webpage for the show at TVJerry.com. White superintendents of asylums, to the extent that they considered African Americans at all, they tended to believe that, uh, or, or at least purport to believe, that slavery offered a kind of protection from insanity. And I
0: it should be at the discretion of hospital superintendents and individual
1: states whether or not they were willing to accept Africans, black folk, former slaves, freedmen into their respective institutions. The Commonwealth of Virginia in 1846 had already decided that they were going to open up a wing or a basement to accept and provide services to freed slaves. That was a clip from Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored Insane, a documentary produced by today's guest, Sean O. Utsi. Dr. Utsi is a professor in the Department of Psychology at VCU, but his passion is the documentaries he produces on Richmond's African-American history. We'll discuss creating Lunatic Asylum, his earlier doc, Until the Well Runs Dry, Medicine and the Exploitation of Black Bodies, getting an interview with Dick Gregory, and what's next.
2: Sifter, review of the week.
1: Robots on Hulu. Shailene Woodley's character just wants men to buy her designer purses, while Jack Whitehall's wants to bed as many women as possible. They both use robot twins to do the romancing, then they swoop in to collect their booty. Due to a mix-up, the two robots end up on a date and fall in love. Since these androids are illegal, this poses issues for the humans. Whitehall is a fine, funny comedian, and his acting tends to reflect the same smarmy, self-involved type. He's also creating a similar character in the current season of After Party. Woodley is lovely, but lacks much comic appeal. Even though the story holds potential to be screwball funny, there's seldom any real laughs. The film moves with energy and their chemistry's okay, but essentially it lacks much comic charm. One complaint, while this is supposed to take place in 2032, the only futuristic thing is the robots. There are no driverless cars or anything else. I gave robots 2.5 out of 5 stars. Sean Yutsi, or should I say Dr. Yutsi, welcome to Sifter. Thank you. Obviously, you are now at VCU, a professor in the Department of Psychology. How did you decide to, I'm going to make a movie?
2: Oh, good question. Um, when I first arrived at VCU in 2005, I was in psychology department. Uh, around 2007, they asked if I would apply to be chair. Of the department of african-american studies and i had to figure out how to make my work relevant to african-american studies and so during one event i had hosted the filmmaker hali jerima an ethiopian filmmaker from washington dc known for the cult classic sankofa and he came down to speak to vcu students and i was hosting him and in between the hotel and the university he and I began to talk about the struggles of young black males in urban centers. And he recommended as a solution that we put cameras in their hands and let them tell their stories. huh. So I started the film camp for young black boys from the East end of Richmond. And as part of that film camp, I attended a week long film camp myself at Lehigh university in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I made a short and, and that began my love for filmmaking.
1: So, before you started your first short, you didn't really have a background in filmmaking either. You never thought, I'm going to do this. This was just a, whoa, a new career, kind of.
2: Never. I used to video record my son's football games.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, let's talk about some of your movies. The first of these documentaries you did was called Meet Me in the Bottom. Tell me what that's about and how you stumbled across that and why you decided to make a movie out of it.
2: The, The full title is Meet Me in the Bottom. The Struggle to Reclaim Richmond's African Burial Ground. And so, as I mentioned, I was doing the film camp and a community activist, Anna Edwards, heard about the film camp. And she said, you might want to think about doing a film on the uh, African burial ground of Shaco Bottom. I began to chronicle the struggle of the community to regain the sacred space in Shaco Bottom. And from that work, I began to hear from interviewees and other people that they had been stealing bodies from that cemetery. To use in experiments, and that's kind of what they said. What I found out that they were in fact stealing bodies, but not from that cemetery uh, because that cemetery had closed by that time, and a new one had opened from where they were stealing bodies, and they were stealing them for medical dissection, not necessarily experimentation. So it was certainly a rumor and part of the folklore that was true, and so I, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind, and when I finished the first film. I began to make the second one.
1: Footnote. His second documentary was titled Until the Well Runs Dry, Medicine and the Exploitation of Black Bodies.
2: The second film uh, began as an expose on Chris Baker, who was the African-American who lived in the basement of the medical college, whose responsibility was to secure bodies. Right. But as I began to do research and learned that this is a widespread practice, not only in Richmond, but in other localities during the Antebellum South, I began to expand my interest.
1: You start out with some interviews of some women whose family, whose ancestors had been involved in some way. How did you find those people?
2: That's an interesting question. I had got the idea to interview Black people in Richmond who were 90 years and older. Oh, okay. And so I had been working at Peter Paul Development Center on the oral history project. And so when I began to uh, investigate this study, I contacted Peter Paul uh, and they said they had people who, when they mentioned it, knew stories about this. Wow. And so it began with they heard as children to avoid the medical college. Right. And then that went into stories about their own experiences at the medical college. Right. All of them knew facts that you would only know if you either heard the truth or you had done some research, right. right? They None of them said the doctors. They all said student doctors, which was, was accurate, right? They even said that they would take the bodies in a cart, which is also accurate. Uh, it was just incredible that they had these details.
1: So it had to be true since they had these details.
2: Now, right? there were other women who declined to go on camera because they were afraid that they might, because they were still being seen at MCB for their health care they were being followed at mcb and they were afraid that it might impact their health care status so they declined to go on camera but wow. they confirmed likewise and these people were interviewed separately they were not interviewed in a group they were interviewed separately
0: oh interesting surprise guest drop in good morning <laughs> hey Todd, how are you doing well doing well how are you guys doing this morning <laughs>
1: Footnote: Todd Reviota is a film professional and editor for Dr. UC's Projects, who also teaches at the Maggie L. Walker Governor School and at VMFA. Todd, how do you know Sean?
0: I have the good fortune to uh, work with Dr. Uzi, Sean on their films as, a, as an editor and collaborator.
1: And Sean, how did you find Todd to do that?
0: Wow, that's a good question because we've been working together for a long time. Yeah, I think since 2011.
2: I've always used the VCU film and photography department to get my talented editors.
0: I remember getting an email at some point with an invitation to to meet, to interview, to to talk about what project you were working on at the time until the well runs dry.
1: So what was the biggest challenge for you, Todd, on working on this project? I'm sure there was a lot of footage because obviously there are a lot of interviews involved.
0: The challenge more came to the subject matter and uh, processing history that I I had no awareness of. Uh, My father was a medical professional, and uh, in working on the material and working with the interviews and the archival material, it was just processing so much of the history of medical institutions and schools and in in working with Dr. Ritzi and the material, coming to grips and terms with that. The information and the interviews were just mind-blowing. You know, again, with that family history to medicine, it... Felt really important to do. Footnote.
1: At this point, Dr. Uzi changed over to his car, so the audio is a little different. Obviously, he edited it. What kind of perspective or what kind of other things did Todd bring to this project?
3: Although he brought the technical component, uh, he also brought an artistic perspective around what to include, what not to include. He was also easy to work with because his politics were not identical to mine, but they were in the same direction. Meaning what? Meaning that my goal in filmmaking is to tell truth, kind of a social justice perspective on the truth and trying to move people, their attitudes, beliefs in a particular direction based on the information I provide and the tone I set in that film. And I think Todd understood that and shared some of my politics around social justice. Todd also is probably a a little more even keel than I am, less inclined to radicalism. So he wouldn't, he would always pull me back in with recommendations, wouldn't let me go too far out on a limb.
0: My caution always comes from a sort of like, how can viewers and audience reach accessibility to as many people as possible? And that's where we've had this conversation and I I do think it's a, a great balance. You know i can learn a lot from pushing the envelope and having some more intensity and more um aggressive isn't the right word but there's an energy of confrontation that is important with intention
1: right now obviously the relationship worked well because you went on to edit the central lunatic asylum which we haven't talked about yet why did you want to come back? Obviously, all must like each other enough to keep working together.
0: For me, again, it's anytime I get the the call or the email, I want to see the film that Dr. Itzi is making. And if I get to also see the material that makes the film, then I'm going to have a rare privilege to to help communicate those stories. Again, the personal lines that do crisscross with the subject matter and my own life becomes really important. Um, my mother's mother, had spent some time in an asylum in Louisiana. And uh, when we were working on the film, I was talking to my mother and I heard stories and conversations that she had to share that I I would have never heard. And that's part of, again, whenever I get the call or the email, I, I wanna work on the project.
1: How many hours, and you can pick either of the documentaries or both of them, how many hours of footage and how many hours of editing did it take?
0: You know, I, I don't have the full number and we always go back to gigabytes and terabytes, you know, projects and hard drives. Um, I'm looking at some hard drives right now. I mean, they get filled up quick. But that that's the thing about making a documentary is you might have an hour or two hour interview, but you can only use 10, 15 minutes of it uh, spread out over the film. And that's, again, the gift and the privilege of being an editor is you watch all those interviews and you get to be informed by by what's been said or shared. And then that informs what the audience will see.
1: Uh, obviously, the audience can't see this because it's a podcast, but you're surrounded by hundreds of, yeah. I guess those are DVDs back there. Is that your personal collection?
0: Yeah. Yeah. In, in a just a side obsession, I library archive DVDs. It was one of my coping mechanisms just with life in general, but during the, <laughs> the big years of the pandemic, was going to thrift stores and getting movies for a dollar. In this time and age movies excess and what companies are buying other companies and bolting stuff you know it's like oh well i'll I'll put that in my library and I have I now have a copy um so you know a pride and joy is is this library collection and and that's not all of it there's there's a lot more
1: so Todd I want to thank you so much for dropping in and and shedding a little light on working with Dr. Utsi.
0: thank you take care
1: bye-bye take care Todd. When we left off, we were talking about interviewing some of these people who had been involved years ago to over 90 now. in the documentary, there were some seemingly random men on the street. They were just longtime Richmond residents. Why did you decide to just wander around the streets and find I, I assume random?:
3: They' random, yeah, they were random. What I wanted to make sure I, I don't do is capture voices of privileged people only like myself as a professor, I'm inclined to interview other historians and professors. So I wanted to talk to regular Richmond people. And I figured I, I'd find people on the street, but I, I thought that their contributions uh, were tremendous. I thought they were authentic, unrehearsed, and I really I really uh, appreciated their contribution. In, in my mind, those are some of the best moments of the documentary.
1: Speaking of random people, you're in the interview also. Was that intentional, or were there like some blank spots? You said, well, let me jump in and I can add that information. I
3: don't normally... <laughs> Uh, appear in my own videos, like like Spike Lee. But I, I was able to gain access to the basement of the medical college. And I was in the area where the bodies were kept, where Chris Baker lived and kept the bodies. I thought it would be neat to go live or to do an interview with that as the backdrop. A few instances where it's kind of dark with a brick background, I'm in the basement of the medical college. Uh-huh. The other time I appear, there was some blank spots about Chris Baker's lineage that I want to fill in the blanks on that.
1: Uh-huh. Well, that's good. That worked out. And this one, you worked with some illustrators to kind of create some additional, I guess, B-roll or some additional illustrations. Yeah. How was working with that? How did you find those illustrators, and how was adding those in?
3: Well, I didn't have any money to do this project, so I had to find people who I could afford. And they were students in the kinetic imaging department. Very talented
1: undergrad. My big surprise was, you know, I've seen all these intellectuals and these people. I had no idea who they were. And then all of a sudden, Dick Gregory popped in.
0: Footnote.
1: Dick Gregory was a stand-up comic and social critic who actually ran for president in 1968 as the write-in for the Freedom and Peace Party. How did you find yeah. him? And how did he know all that stuff?
3: That was fun. <laughs> My connection with Allegra Football Society and Janine Bell she was bringing Dick Gregory to Richmond because she has a cultural center, and so she brings in speakers all the time right. that we can't afford at BCU. She gets funding from the city and the state, and because she's community-based, sometimes they'll do it for less money for her. So I agreed to be a chauffeur. <laughs> I agreed to pick him up from the airport. I agreed to take him from here and there in exchange for a 15-, 20-minute interview. I took him to the hotel, and we had a conversation in, a conversation in the lobby was really one of the best days of my life. We hung out all day. He did speak at VCU. We were able to kind of uh, provide a contribution that would uh, get him to agree to come and speak on the campus as well. And so in true Dick Gregory fashion, he wanted to make sure the check didn't bounce. So I took him to the bank to cash the check I just gave him. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, a, a episode in itself. Imagine walking into the bank in the black community with Dick Gregory. Everything stopped. He became It became a, a, a performance, a show. Wow. But it was a show of love. They were just in love with him. Sure. And so I interviewed him at the hotel, and I didn't think he knew that much. To be honest, I was really interested in his celebrity status and that he would give a boost. You know what I'm saying? It would be a big boost for the project to have him appear. But what he knew surprised me.
1: Yeah, me too. It's interesting because I was watching this documentary. I kept notes, of course, and one of the notes I made is it's interesting that this is in the racist South and blacks were considered less than, but these doctors were studying on their bodies. How could they justify that? And then, of course, you address that almost immediately as I brought up that question in the movie. That's an interesting dichotomy.
3: I think it really illuminates even contemporary attitudes towards race and racial differences. Uh, in those days, as I think it was noted, that doctors made no bones. The power structure, science, and the political structures made no bones about saying that Black people perhaps were not really fully human, that they were perhaps a subspecies. Right. That was a real worldview, a real belief system. I suspect that the scientific community knew better, but it was politically expedient.
1: So let's switch over now to the other documentary, your most recent documentary. And this title just says so much about racism and the world at the time. Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored Insane. When you told me that, it just blew my mind that that was even a real place. But that was a real place. How did you find out about
3: this? Before I came to VCU, I was at Howard University in D.C. And so my colleagues knew I was coming to Richmond and told me that I should investigate the hospital in Petersburg if I get a chance. And so I never really paid much attention to it. Even when I got here, I never really thought about it. But I was trying to get some funding from DPN, which was uh, formerly... WCVE. Right. I had worked with them before. They aired, my, they aired both documentaries. And so I met with the uh, director of programming, I believe. Uh, and he was like, we would love to fund something you do. So I didn't have a topic. <laughs> and so I said, I'll get back to you on Thursday with the exact nature of the project. And I said, now's the time to do that project. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, this is before they were VPM. We met again. And he said, we love it, but we need a positive story. <laughs> oh. But when I went back to talk to them, they had restructured. And the person who promised me their money was no longer there. So I just did my story with no money.
1: There you go i tell you the most fascinating thing about that that comes up in the early interviews, that they also kept saying they felt that slavery was healthy. It was good for the people to work in the fields. And that just blew my mind. That that was a concept that carried on even into the hospital.
3: I did that interview probably two, three years ago. And now we have the governor of Florida, including in the curriculum, (laughs) that slavery was beneficial to black people because they learned some skills. Oh, Lord. So... As you can see, the concept is not new. The the concept is is why people really believe that. Prior to emancipation, the argument to maintain slavery was that black people would lose their minds if they were having to think for themselves and do for themselves. So slavery is protective. And then after emancipation, there was like all the problems that black people are having are because of the stress of freedom. So it was kind of from both angles,
1: before
3: and after emancipation
1: pretty amazing. Well, so what was the biggest challenge in creating this one?
3: The most difficult thing was trying to locate all the appropriate informants. I was able to get historians, former employees. I wanted to see about some former patients. Now, patients are admitted for all kinds of reasons. There are stories of people who were born deaf. They were thought to be developmentally delayed or mentally retarded or otherwise having signs of insanity and they were admitted to the hospital.
1: Wow.
3: Right? So there are people who would have been admitted admitted for all kinds of reasons, would have probably figured out later in life that I probably didn't belong there. Right. I would have liked to interview some former patients, but I didn't have a chance to do that. Came across some people who were the descendants, the children or grandchildren of former patients, but I couldn't figure out how to get our schedules together, so I couldn't include them either. So that was a challenge in trying to get a well-rounded,
1: Stories. Uh, they that, that had some amazing stories too. You mentioned you have a project you're working on now. What is that one? This is the history of Black Studies in colleges and universities. In colleges and universities. And you're going obviously beyond VCU for that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Black Studies is seen as the third wave of the Black liberation or Black freedom struggles. You have obviously civil rights. Right. You have the Black Power movement. Black Studies was the third wave. Because black studies came from the black power movement, but on the college campuses. And that forged a new struggle for the academic inclusion or the intellectual analysis of the black experience. Oh. Right? So this really changes the whole discussion of black freedom movements because in the streets, civil rights, black power, but now we're taking it to institutions of higher learning. So it, it really begins to shape. A discourse about black people,
1: right, right, in
3: ways that were not possible when we weren't learning. When we didn't see black people as worthy of study or
1: inquiry. That's interesting. I had never thought of it like that. Uh, now you mentioned that, uh, that the first of the two documentaries were shown on VPM or WCVE, whichever it was at the time. What is the best way for people to see the this current documentary on the Central Lunatic Asylum?
3: Well, I'm trying to set up a streaming service on Vimeo. Okay. Again, I've gone back to uh, school of film and photography at VCU, and I have a meeting on Monday with a student to help me launch that site, so I can include all of my works. Terrific. And there are others I haven't mentioned. I did a documentary on Massive Resistance. It was really a all history project. I talked to uh, uh, people you wouldn't believe who were center to the Massive Resistance movement in the '50s. Right. People who were at the forefront of the lawsuit. Against the schools, demanding that they be accommodated. Uh, I met a woman who was an anthropologist. She had studied under E. Franklin Frazier at Howard University back in the 40s and 50s. And, and here she was, a 95-year-old woman wow, in a nursing home. And when I told her I was doing some research on oral history, she said, oh, I used to do research. And I said to myself, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> but no, she really did.
1: She,
3: she really did do research. It was incredible. Wow, wow. The other woman I interviewed, she um, went to the White House on her 100th birthday and danced with Obama.
1: Wow.
3: On her 100th birthday.
1: And I will have a, uh, your webpage up on the website at TV Jerry so people can actually check all these out. One thing I always like to ask everybody is what, when you're not working, teaching at school or working on your own documentaries, what do you like to watch?
3: I, I sometimes watch a lot of history shorts on youtube and so i spend too much time on youtube watching historical documentaries
1: that's a rabbit hole
3: the rabbit hole it is it is now i was watching one there was one i think it's called the changeling
1: that's on apple with lakeith stanfield
3: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The, the actor he played in uh get out in atlanta yeah. he's a crazy incre- he's, he's incredible he's incredible
1: yeah that's a pretty creepy series i'll be interested to in see it's where creepy. it goes it's creepy <laughs> Well, Sean, looks like you're continuing to make interesting documentaries, so thanks for joining me, and I can't wait to hear more. And thank you for uh, thinking of me. Sean O. Utsi is professor in the Department of Psychology at VCU, but his passion is the documentaries he produces on Richmond's African-American history. There's a link to his Vimeo page included on the webpage for this show at tvjerry.com.
3: Coming soon.
1: In theaters. Expendables, with the four worked into the title. The cast of Ancients includes Sly Stallone, Jason Statham, and Doth Lundgren, with 50 Cent and Megan Fox on the younger side. Dumb Money, based on the GameStop stock market scam, starring Paul Dano and Pete Davidson. The Blind, a faith based film about Phil Robertson, who later became famous for Duck Dynasty. It Lives Inside. An Indian-American teen is already struggling with her identity when a demonic entity feeds on her loneliness. The Origin of Evil, a French import about a woman who tries to connect with her father after a financial collapse. TV and streaming. With the strike continuing, Amazon Prime has unleashed a bunch of 40s classics, including early monsters, westerns, and dramas. Cassandro, also on Amazon. Gael Garcia Bernal plays the famous gay amateur wrestler from El Paso. American Horror Story Delicate, on Hulu, this anthology series is back, with Emma Roberts having baby issues, and Kim Kardashian joining the cast. Gen V, on Amazon, from the world of The Boys, comes this new series about the first generation of superheroes who know their powers are from Compound V. Spy Kids Armageddon, on Netflix, Robert Rodriguez's latest version of the kids series. The Supermodels on Apple, a quartet of supermodels from the 90s assembled to talk about their past. No One Will Save You on Hulu, a thriller about a woman who encounters an alien in her home. The Continental from the World of John Wick on Peacock, 50 years before the John Wick movies, we visit the Crucial Hotel with three 90-minute episodes. Crapopolis on Hulu, an animation that follows humans, gods, and monsters as they try to run one of the world's first cities without killing each other. You can subscribe to this podcast on all the usual platforms, or you can visit tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. Next week features a newer approach to the African-American experience, Sightlines BLM, a film festival of shorts created by local writers and directors. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more Sister,
0: including literally thousands Thousands of reviews, reviews.
2: visit tvjerry.com.
0: That's a wrap.